Uh, Lord Jesus, uh, we do uh, come to you this morning uh, with heavy hearts, especially in light of what has happened in Paris and in Beirut. And Lord, uh, we pray that you would, in your mercy, uh, comfort those uh, who uh, mourn, comfort those who are grieved. Uh, Lord, heal those uh, who are wounded. And Lord, that you would give us strength and courage and perseverance to the people of France and Lebanon and all around the world. And Lord, for those who have perpetrated these attacks, Lord, that you would change their hearts, uh, that they might see you and behold you and call upon your strong name. And Lord, uh, be with us in the midst of our time now, uh, that you would uh, open your word to us, that we might indeed see you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. Okay. Uh, We've got a big uh, chunk of scripture to cover this morning, and we're probably going to go into uh, next week, uh, because we're going to be talking about this week and probably next, evangelism, uh, telling people uh, about uh, Jesus. And uh, the big verse for that we typically go to is from Matthew 28. Jesus said, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And lo, I will be with you until the very end of the age. Uh, But for a lot of Episcopalians and mainline denomination people, their favorite uh, evangelism verse is when Jesus says, and then Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Um, uh, We kind of like that one. Uh, That's kind of nice. So we're going to talk about evangelism. What is it uh, in light of what Paul is doing in Acts 13? Uh, but also, uh, we're going to talk about what are, what are some of the hang-ups, what are some of the impediments uh, outside of us, but those that are also inside of us uh, that uh, cause us um, pause when it comes to sharing our faith. So let's take a look at Acts 13, beginning with the 13th verse. And I'm going to skip around a little bit because it's a big passage. And so Paul and... Um, His companions have uh, left Cyprus and they've gone up uh, to Paphos, which is on the Mediterranean coast of Turkey. And so that's where we are. Uh, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on that Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down after reading from the law and the prophets, The rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hands said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, He gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. 
And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, the sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of salvation. So he continues to talk about what Jesus has done uh, for us. Uh, Let it be known to you, therefore, verse 38, brothers and sisters, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. As they went out, people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting in the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles." And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. The word of the Lord. Okay. Well, uh, this is a great way of talking about evangelism uh, from within the church. When we think of the Great Commission of going, therefore, and making all disciples of all nations, Uh, We also uh, tend to think of Acts, where Jesus says, I want you to go to Jerusalem, to to Judea, through Samaria, to the very ends of the earth. I want you to take this gospel message, this good news of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Full stop. That's clearly the message that is being preached time and time again. You never, ever hear Paul doing a five-part sermon series on getting your finances together as a Christian. It just doesn't happen. I was reading, and I'll bring this up later, uh, Craig Ogard sent me a very interesting article from the Huffington Post. And uh, Will Williman, who is uh, the former Methodist bishop uh, of North Alabama, he was here in Birmingham, and now he's back at Duke, uh, where he was for so many years before he became a bishop in the Methodist church. He was sort of uh, thinking upon a lot of sermon series that are going on in the church right now. And he was saying, you know, I, um, I know somebody in the Methodist church who just finished up a six-part series on sex in the pulpit. And he said, I can't think of anyone I would rather not hear about sex from than a Methodist preacher. Like, that is not something that, that I really want to hear. And so Paul is not so much concerned with what people might perceive to be their needs which we see in this passage, but actually what they really need, what they really need. And it is the propensity of all of us to think that in life we need a swim coach cheering us on from the sidelines, but in fact what we need is a lifeguard, somebody to jump into the riptide of sin and to pull us out. Right? That's what we need in life, and that's what St. Paul preached. Now, it's very interesting, I think, that there is this great commission, and certainly Paul is going to the ends of the earth uh, to make this happen. Uh, He's been to Cyprus, uh, and now uh, he's up in the area of Turkey. And uh, 
And yet the first place that he goes is to the local synagogue. That's where he goes. He goes to preach uh, Jesus to the Jews. And what is their initial response here to Paul's preaching? They love it. They love it. Uh, They're eating it up and they think that it's so great. And we know that beyond uh, the walls of the synagogue, uh, Paul and Barnabas, uh, they began to uh, gossip the gospel. Uh, They began to talk about the grace of God in Jesus Christ wherever they went, so much so that when next Saturday morning rolled around, what happened? It was packed. It was packed. And with people that weren't Jews but were Gentiles who never in a million years would have ever, ever, ever darkened the doors of a synagogue. But now that they've heard this message, they want to hear more. Now, those who heard Paul preach on that first Saturday that loved him, now how do they feel? We don't like this one bit. Uh, I have been uh, in not that many search processes uh, as um, uh, for, to be the rector of a church, but what is the one thing that every single church has said to me and says to anybody uh, when they're interviewing? What's one of their biggest goals? We want to grow the church, right? But if you start peeling back the layers, they want to grow the church with people just like them. Uh, and so anytime that you have an influx of a demographic that is other into the church, it causes panic, just naturally. I do think it's true that for all of us in life, uh, change, change is always initially experienced as loss. Anytime we have a change in our lives, it's initially experienced as loss. Even if we see it as something trivial or small, uh, there's a sense uh, of loss to that. And so that's what these uh, folks here in the synagogue are experiencing, that this change is simply uh, too much. I thought it was, uh, I was, I'm going to Haiti tomorrow for 48 hours. And um, sounds like a good book, doesn't it? 48 hours in Haiti. Um, I looked up to see if there were any golf courses in Haiti. There are not. Uh, but uh, they're doing some good work down there, and so I'm going to go down and be with them for a couple days. Uh, but as I was reading about Haiti, uh, back in the 19th century, over 10,000 Haitians immigrated to New Orleans, doubling the size of that city. Meaning what? It changed the city, right? It cha- and you see the influences even today just simply because they stacked the deck. Uh, do you all ever remember reading a couple years ago there was this big move uh, of people who were uh, intensely uh, libertarian uh, in their mindset, and they did the math, and they said, if just 20,000 of us moved to New Hampshire, we could take over. <laughs> right. we, could, we could stack it. We could all live in log cabins, and, and it would be great, and everybody would leave us alone. Well, of course, that didn't happen, but they were right. They were on to something. The fact that uh, the population of New Orleans doubled with Haitians, it changed the face of that city. And now in the synagogue, when you have people from all over the city that uh, outnumber greatly the number in that synagogue, uh, change is, is going to come. And so what they've lost sight of is it's not so much uh, about the message to them. It's not about them, uh, but it's about the message and who the message is about, who is Jesus Christ. Right? That is one of the amazing things uh, about Christianity is that Christians don't fit a particular demographic around the world. So if I asked you here in the United States, what is the average Episcopalian like? 
Well, I can actually tell you what they're like statistically. They're white. They're over the age of 64. They're female. They probably drive a Volvo and have either a lab or a golden retriever. Right? That's, basically, that's basically what it is. What is the average Anglican around the world? A non-white female under the age of 25 that walks them more than a mile to church every Sunday. That's what the average Episcopalian looks like uh, around uh, the world. And so uh, the, that's one of the amazing things about uh, Christianity is that it is for everybody. And why Paul could go to all of these places, it's, you know, even though he's there in the Mediterranean, and there was commerce, and, and there was travel, and things like that. Uh, but uh, the world was a much bigger place back then, right? They weren't able to get online and read the news. They weren't able to email their college roommate uh, who now lives in Rome. Uh, they didn't have any of that stuff. I mean, you know the, what technology was? Carrier pigeons. Carrier pit. That's technology for them, right? And so uh, the scrolls, even that they had with the scriptures on them, uh, were treasured because they weren't mass-produced. But actually, we can see uh, when Paul starts talking about John the Baptist, does that language sound familiar? And John the Baptist said, Who do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Does that sound familiar? Those are the words of John the Baptist. So even in this time, the scriptures were there. Uh, and Paul was reading them, and he was expounding them, and he was uh, preaching them uh, to anyone who would listen. And he could go to all of these disparate cultures and uh, different races, uh, different tribes, uh, different languages. And he could go, and he could preach, and people's ears were opened uh, to the gospel message. Now, uh, even when Paul preached in a place, as you can say, well, that's really easy, because if Paul ticked off somebody, he could just leave town. And sometimes that happened. Um, somebody was asking me once what the difference between a pastor is and an evangelist. And the pastor jo pastor's job is to comfort the afflicted, and the evangelist's job is to afflict the comforted, <laughs> pretty much. And so that's, that's what Paul was doing. But you know, Paul never just said, well, praise the Lord, I'll see you later. What did he do? They began to build churches, and he began to invest in individuals and disciple them there in those communities. And that's why you hear about people like Priscilla and Aquila and Lydia and, um, and others uh, who were leaders in the church that were doing a great work that were left behind to minister to those local congregations. And so Paul didn't leave. Uh, he handed off the leadership to somebody else. And we see that when he's writing the letters. I mean, one of the most prominent examples being Timothy, you know, young Timothy, who became a Christian through the ministry of his mother and grandmother. And yet Paul poured his life discipling Timothy, uh, but then left him, right? And so Timothy was a leader apart and would talk to Paul about his struggles. And that's why Paul would write those letters. And indeed, uh, Paul's last writing was his second letter to Timothy, and he writes as a father does to his son, and you can hear the emotion in his voice as he writes to Timothy of, this is my last word to you because I'm probably going to die, and so what is it that I'm trying to impart to you? Right? If you want a model of discipleship of how to disciple other people, read 2 Timothy. 
It's a great book uh, for that. And so, yes, it required a clear articulation of the gospel, but it also required investment in the lives of individuals. And all of this is cross-cultural because the gospel levels the playing field, right? It levels everything. It speaks to everyone, everywhere, in a way that other worldviews and philosophies don't. Even so, you know, the Bible says, doesn't, this is my paraphrase, the Bible says that we ought to pour out the word like water and pray that the Holy Spirit turns it into wine. And so nobody becomes a Christian, or I don't make anybody a Christian, I should say. Andrew Pearson has never, ever made somebody a Christian. Now, God may have used me as God may have used you, but ultimately it's God, the Holy Spirit, who makes people Christians, right? Who have adopted, adopted them, who have worked in their hearts to open them uh, to hear this gospel message. And so if it's God that does the converting, why are we so reluctant to talk about the gospel message, right? It's not polite to talk about what? Politics and religion. Uh, now, we've gotten over that first one. Everybody's talking about politics now. Now, I can understand the outside forces of why not. I mean, it is amazing to me how fast things change and how in our world, I'd be curious to hear what y'all have to say about this. We were talking about it at dinner, um, whether it's situational or whether it's systemic, uh, but certainly in areas uh, where ISIS uh, is active, even Paris, France uh, right now, um, there is a certain militancy, to say the least, uh, regarding uh, their cause. I put an article up on Facebook that said, nine things you ought to know about the Islamic State. And it's pretty nitty-gritty uh, about things and, and explaining some of their justifications, uh, even their justifications for raping prepubescent girls, uh, their, their theological rationale uh, behind that. And uh, to get to that point is not only barbarous, but, uh, but to uh, inflict it upon uh, an entire people. I mean, the whole idea is that the caliphate will be over every uh, Muslim person in the world, and they're already calling for them and have been, that if you're Muslim, your job is to come back and be a part of the caliphate, be in the Islamic State. And uh, one of the reasons why uh, there's such a an overwhelming number of girls uh, being um, forced into sexual slavery is that that is one of the things that draw men to fight for them. And, um, and so you've got that uh, where we would look at it and say, just objectively speaking, you can throw Jesus out the window. This is crazy. Right? This is crazy uh, and wrong. Um, but even so, I mean, even in our own culture, and this is where I'd welcome some of your feedback, in our own culture, uh, can you hear me in the back? I don't feel like the thing. Okay, thanks, Charles. Um, I wasn't looking at you because I thought you were the hardest of hearing, uh, but I, I just wanted to um, But, you know, the, the recent uh, incidents on the campuses of Missouri with the president resigning uh, and Yale with uh, the whole issue over uh, Halloween costumes and how everything is so emotionally charged uh, that... Uh, any dissent, and even if it's reprehensible, or even if you disagree uh, with the dissent, uh, but it has to be eliminated. It has to be uh, removed. It has to be uh, taken away. Now, the Bible 
lets us know that the moment you try to ban something, you better watch out because it's going to come full force back on you. And so it actually is going to cause this vicious cycle to, to come about. Uh, but if you're not even allowed to disagree about, uh, well, the, the situation at Yale was this. Uh, the 19 college administrators sent a letter to Yale University, Yale University, and said, we want you to be very, we want you to be conscientious about your choice in Halloween costumes. Now, I wish that it said, don't, don't wear that. You look ridiculous. You know, the, the girls wearing the skimpy stuff, uh, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. Uh, but that's not what they were talking about. They were talking about things that might be uh, ethnically or racially offensive to people. Well, uh, the master of Silliman College, which is a residential college there at Yale, his wife, who is a uh, professor of pediatric psychology, I think, she wrote an email to the university saying, you know, I understand what you're saying, but at the same time, we need to allow these students to make their own decisions, right? They're now adults, and we need to trust them to make the right decisions. And if one person being offended is going to be the standard by which we gauge all others, we're going to be in big trouble. Like, the fact of the matter is, is that in life, you're going to get offended. And how do you deal with that, right? It's part of growing up. Well, this very mild email, which you can read, um, cause such a furor that now they're demanding that they both be fired, both she and her husband, thrown off campus. In fact, some have written letters saying that because she wrote this email, I can't even bring myself to live in Silliman College anymore and therefore am going to live on the quad. And I'm just thinking, I mean, that was the great thing about college, living in the bubble. You didn't want to know what was happening out there, right? You, and it's sort of like it's so hard for me to live in this dorm with a huge game room and an indoor pool and a gym and a theater, and uh, it's awful. Uh, and it, it really, uh, and you can get on YouTube and hear this student just dressing down the master of Silliman College and the profanity. And, uh, and the thing that she was screaming out that really stuck with me, she said, it's not your job to carve out a place for intellectual pursuit but it's your job to create a home for us, to keep us safe. That's just crazy to me. Um, and, uh, but, but that just did it. It may be crazy to me. You might think, no, that makes total sense. Uh, but what I really am trying to get at is no, so, not so much the content, but the feeling behind that, that there is definitely a militancy gaining momentum even here in the United States uh, that uh, creates a very unhealthy degree of ill liberality uh, in our culture that is really unhealthy. I mean, I think one of the, you know, think about it. What are some of the best meals that you've ever been a part of? The food was probably pretty good, but the ones where you were actually engaging in conversation and getting below the surface, right? You were actually talking about real life. Now, we're getting to a place where you're not going to be allowed to talk about real life. You're just not. And that's already happening in the sense that, you know, in job interviews, your job is to lie. Just lie. Make yourself sound really good. And, um, and not just that, you're never going to get below uh, the surface, and uh, you're not going to be able to build relationships uh, with, with anybody. Uh, and not just that, you will only see them as, uh, by what they stand for rather than who they are as a human being. I mean, that's the thing, that if anybody disagrees with you uh, religiously or politically, 
um, what they might believe may be offensive to you, uh, but really taking the time to get to know that person and get behind it. Why do they think that? So it's very interesting to me that when I, I talk to folks who say that they're true atheists, they believe that there is no God, which is actually very rare. And in the most recent survey of religious life in America, uh, when they were surveying African Americans, Gallup, Gallup could not find one African American atheist. And I thought that was very interesting in their survey. So they actually said that they went beyond their, their numbers in order to try to find an African American who would say, I'm an atheist. I don't believe there is any God. I mean, there were people that said, I believe in God, but I don't believe in Jesus, things like that. Uh, and so even in our culture, it's very hard to find someone who's a true atheist. But when I do, one of their objections to Christianity is that it's an emotional crutch. That, that and in some sense it is, right? It's more than an emotional crutch, it's a foundation. But then when I talk to them about their atheism, it's amazing to me how 100% of the time, their decision to become an atheist is rooted in some very distressing emotional moment in their lives. Something tragic, something of significance has happened to them in order to make them question uh, the existence of God. And so too, uh, that deeply held belief of atheism is rooted in a very personal experience. And I feel as human beings, much less Christians, human beings is to enter into that with them, to actually talk about what's real, not what's up here, not amongst the talking heads. I came across this uh, quote by Penn Jillette. Uh, Y'all might know Penn and Teller, right? The comedians slash uh, magicians. This is not offensive, by the way, so I can... Um, uh, uh, Penn Jillette um, is, uh, is, um, was talking about... He's a, an avowed and vocal atheist. In fact, has gone so far to do a couple... Uh, you can watch him on Netflix. Uh, a couple specials about why atheism, atheism is the way to go. And uh, he was talking once about a nice young man who uh, tried to evangelize Penn. And here's what he said. I've always said, you know, that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. How much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate someone to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it and that truck was bearing down on you, there is a certain point where I tackle you. And what he's talking about, he's talking about evangelism, and this, this is more important than the truck. Right, so here is a self-avowed evangelizing atheist who's saying, look, I don't respect people who don't share their faith because if it's actually that important to you, if it's changed your life, if it's saved your life, why wouldn't you share it? Now look, I am not uh, one of those guys who's a big fan of standing up on the street corner and saying, turn or burn. Like That's, that's not me. Uh, but I was at a conference one time and they're about 500, 700 people in this big room, and somebody was making fun of gospel tracks, right, which you find on the sinks of the men's room. Are they in the ladies' room, too? I don't know. 
No, but they're always in men's rooms at restaurants. Uh, the gospel tracks there on the side, and this guy was making fun of it. And he said, you know, I mean, but really, whoever became a Christian by reading a gospel tract? And one by one, hands started to go up. There were probably about two dozen, about 24 people who, uh, who put their hands up, and all of a sudden the guy was like, let us pray. Yeah. <laughs> Right, that's, that's, uh, God hasn't gifted me in that area, and in some, some ways, I think that if I talk to those people, it wasn't that gospel track. It was that gospel track coupled with a personal relationship with someone. But that's also true, too, that we're not, we're not looking at them as a spiritual statistic. My job is to get you in the kingdom of heaven, and then you're on your own. I'm moving on to the next one. But like St. Paul, that you actually care about these people, that you get behind uh, the facade, you invest in their life, you're even willing to push on the bruises, and you have a shared life with them. You have a relationship. You're coming from a place uh, of care and concern, and uh, so your sharing uh, is not so much over and against the person, uh, but is actually uh, sharing with uh, the person. Um, that article I mentioned at Will Willowman. Um, you know, what is the disposition of the world uh, toward us? And uh, Will Willimon uh, had this to say in the Huffington Post. The Pew data suggests that for many Americans, the line between church and rotary, this is how the world looks at us, the church and rotary has become thin. At least rotary meets at a convenient hour of the week and serves lunch. Uh, my late friend, novelist Reynolds Price, great guy, explained that he left the church in the 60s, not only because it was racially segregated, but also because it had forgotten what people need most. I'd go to church, Reynolds said, and they would ask me to coach kids basketball, help in the church kitchen, or attend a fellowship supper. Church is supposed to be where God lives. If a church doesn't make the outrageous assertion that God is a Jew from Nazareth who rose from the dead and makes our lives much more difficult and demanding, it's intellectually uninteresting. As a former church member said recently, quote, at my church we get advice from the pulpit, how to have a happier marriage, how to have a purpose-driven life, how to vote. Sometimes it's good advice, but it's no different than I would have gotten from my daily Huffington Post, which is funny because that's what he's writing in. Why bother with all the church baggage when there's nothing said that fundamentally changes who I am and where I'm headed? Willeman continues, there's ample evidence that American need, Americans need help thinking truthfully about our lives. At its best, the church helps us think under the guise of eternity, looking through the lens of God. That's the most useful thing that we can do for this society, through the church, though the church's value is not merely in its social utility. Church is where we go to talk about sin and death and God and dare to consider the possibility that more is going on in us and the world than we can adequately comprehend with our socially acceptable, governmentally subsidized modes of explanation. Willimon, for decades I was dean of Duke University Chapel. In order to prepare, to prepare for my, my annual graduation sermon, I would gather a focus group of graduating students asking them, what are some hot topics for your generation? And they half-heartedly would suggest a list. Then one said, graduation weekend, we are bound to get lots of advice because that's what old guys like to force upon people like us. We'll be hammered by platitudes from psychology, economics, and politics. 
talk about God. That's not only what you are most qualified to do, but what also scares us beepless. I'm sure if I'm sure I believe I'm not sure I believe that God exists, but it's weird and you think he does. I hope you'll have enough guts to try to change the conversation. And I think that there are a lot of people in the world that are really asking for that, that they don't want, I mean, the people who are walking through our doors, one, God bless them, because that takes a lot of courage to show up at church, which is totally different, especially at a place like the Advent. You basically need a Tibetan Sherpa to navigate your way through worship, right? We're working with it with the bulletin, uh, which, by the way, we're going to be talking about worship all through Advent and some of the things happening at the Advent, the church, not the season. And, uh, and for them to come, uh, they're coming, Why? because uh, they need answers. They need answers. Uh, I think it's uh, really interesting. I've seen this happen a couple times that on those services like Maundy Thursday and Ash Wednesday, uh, the number of people who come to our church who are inebriated that evening, they clock off of work, they hear there's a service going at the Advent, and they come in. Now, I normally sit in the congregation uh, on Maundy Thursday a couple years ago. This is an edifying story. And this man uh, was very inebriated. One of my daughters asked what cologne that was. And, um, and he would snore on and off. Uh, you know, he'd, he, all of a sudden you hear, and he'd sort of wake himself up. Uh, and it was very funny. Uh, I won't tell you who was preaching in the congre- uh, from the clergy, but you'll, you'll know as soon as I say it. Uh, but... He was kind of in and out of sleep, and then all of a sudden, this person walks up in the pulpit, and he goes, whoa, uh, audibly, which I thought was very funny for him to say about Deborah Layton. So uh, I tried to get his number. I tried to get his number, but he didn't. Uh, But why would somebody like that wander into the Advent, uh, or any church for that matter? Uh, Because they're desperate for a word. They're desperate for a word, and what they want to hear is... uh, Does Jesus make any difference in my life? Is what you believe about him true? Uh, Not just some uh, idea that's out there, but rooted in reality. What what does a relationship with Jesus Christ look like in your life? I mean, I've actually been invited to more dinners by non-Christians who have said, look, would you be willing to come over and be the token Christian and help us understand what this Christianity thing is all about? And it's like, do you have lions at your house? You know, I've, I've, this, this scenario has happened before. Um, uh, and you see, they say, no, no, really, we just, we want to talk about it. And, uh, you know, even, and this is in the South, this is in the South, where we have this feeling that everybody kind of knows about Jesus, everybody knows the gospel, and they don't. They don't. They don't have any idea. And so if you're sharing the gospel, if you're sharing a life with somebody, don't presume that they know what you're talking about. I mean, even in uh, the words that you use, because they might be using the same words, but they might be operating under completely different definitions. Completely different different definitions. And so uh, we are going to have to pick this up next week. but there is uh, this uh, impetus, this thrust, this um, fire in the bones that you see throughout Scripture of putting the Word of God out there. And that's the last thing I'll say before we're going to have to pick it up next week, is that uh, in every instance, Paul himself actually uh, opened up the Word of God to people. 
Uh, he didn't sit around and say, well, let me just tell you about um, what, I, what I think. Uh, but let me tell you the truth of the way that things are. And of course, he brought illustrations. He brought his own life into it, as we heard in the sermon here in Acts uh, 13. Uh, but he had a high degree of trust uh, in the Holy Spirit that he would draw people to faith in Jesus. And so next week, we're going to talk about, well, what does this look like, practically speaking? What does it look like to share uh, the gospel with others? And so I'll be bringing up actually some, some of the most hard-hearted of our parishioners here. Just kidding, I'm not doing that. Uh, but we'll be talking about practically how this works. But I'm going to stop right now. I know it sort of seems like I'm stopping midstream, but that's because we'll pick it up next week. Any questions, comments, concerns? Well, I, I guess I, both from the service earlier and somewhat to this, that, you know, that we live in this dichotomy where in my flesh, like Pope Francis, I want all the nations of the world to join together to end this scourge, but that I know with man it's impossible, but with God it's everything's, yeah. and that idea of praying for our enemies. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the, we talked about this, I think, a couple weeks ago when we were talking about um, these people in refugee camps uh, who are becoming Christians. And when you ask them, what would you like for us to pray for? The number one thing they ask others to pray for is pray for our persecutors. Pray that they become Christians, which is radical on two levels. One, why would you pray for them? But two, if they become Christians, that means they become your brother or your sister. Like it's a really radical notion. And one of the things that Christianity brings with it is freedom, frankly. Uh, the freedom to not have to worry about conformity necessarily. The Holy Spirit uh, takes care of that, and you see that throughout the New Testament, of, um, especially when it comes to women uh, and their place and role in the church, which was unheard of in the Mediterranean world. And that's a threat to people whose primary concern in life is control. Right? Religion is about control. Christianity is about relationship. Andrew, I was struck by your comment about how does our faith manifest itself in our lives. And mm-hmm. one of the things I'm thinking about is evangelism oftentimes takes on the uh, appearance of judgment rather than mm-hmm. grace. And I wish you'd, and you mentioned the fact about how we invest in people and have a relationship. Could you comment on that? Yeah, I think that the, if, if you have a relationship with somebody and they, they know you, they've been around you. I mean, one of the most effective tools of ministry for me is playing golf with somebody. Like, you can't be a good boy for four hours. You just can't. And, uh, I mean, golf will, will destroy you. And, um, and eventually, the real you is going to come out. Um, and that goes both ways, on my side, too, uh, which you know about, Jim. Um, so, um, but, you know, if they really know you uh, and they know that you're broken, and they see your own brokenness, uh, how could it possibly be perceived as judgment, right? In the sense that, like, if I'm just walking up to some stranger and I say, and that's another thing, is that we're not, evangelism's primary goal is not behavioral modification, right? That's, the the Holy Spirit is going to work on them in ways. What we're interested in is introducing them to Jesus Christ. And so it is interesting to me when people will bring up issues of morality in evangelism moments. Like, they'll say something about, like, Republicans or, or, uh, or Christian this or, or Christian that. And it's like, that's not what we're talking about. 
That's not what we're talking, you keep bringing that in. What we're talking about is the person of Jesus Christ, who he said he is and what he's done for you. That's the bottom line. So what are you going to do with it? The ball's in your court. Don't worry about this other stuff. Don't worry about this other stuff. Yeah, it seems to me that um, um, both of the incidents that you mentioned, both the, uh, you know, the, just the turmoil in the world and on the campuses, there's just a very strong component of law mm -hmm. with all of that. And so if we come back with more law rather than the grace and the gospel, I mean, that's what they're really, what we really respond to, mm -hmm. I think, is not more law, but more grace. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's oppressive and it causes resentment. So if you remember the, um, the movie, is it A River Runs Through It with, um, with the fly fishing, where they do all that? Uh, the Presbyterian minister uh, who has the two sons, and uh, because he won't, uh, the son won't eat his breakfast, he's like there for days uh, sitting there and, and sleeping at the table and the, fa the father finally gives in. Uh, but that movie is a, is a really good illustration of what, what it looks like if Christianity is primarily about doing. It's, it's, the focus is on the self. Uh, but law is law wherever you go. So if, um, you know, on the college campus, uh, you're only doing your part if you engage in the following activities or if you do thus and such. Uh, well, then, uh, actually, outward conformity isn't going to be that difficult to do. But, uh, but what about those people uh, who are quietly doing the work of reconciliation and actually building uh, relationships and, and going to those hard places uh, because it's really easy to talk about racial problems and violence and things like that on a college campus, right? It's really easy, uh, but, but are, we, are we actually willing to get our hands dirty? Are we actually willing? I mean, that's what Paul did. Paul didn't say, hey, I'm going to set up a little shop here in Jerusalem or in Antioch, and y'all come to me, and I'll be your guru, right? What he said is, I'm going to go to you, even if it means being in a dangerous so, I mean, obviously, I mean, it cost him his life going to a dangerous place. We're going to get to that eventually where he goes off to Rome. He didn't have to do that. In fact, he made a very intentional mistake in order to go to Rome. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, it, it really is. And I mean, the thing about it is, is that when you have those relationships and you have the freedom to be yourself, uh, you actually do begin to see reconciliation when you really get to know somebody. I mean, you want to... if. If you really want to change your, let's say there's somebody in your life who you really dislike, pray for them every single day, and you'll find it very difficult to dislike them after doing that for a while. Pray for me. Uh, <laughs> pray for me. All right, let us bless the Lord.